Hey, podcasters, I'm really excited today. I'm talking with um, Dr. Mark Vukak, who's a, a specialist plastic and recon reconstructive surgeon. And Dr. Vukak is based in um, Townsville, and he services um, Townsville, Rockhampton, Mackay, and Cairns. And today we're going to uh, just be talking about the procedures that he does and why he does what he does and kind of what got him started as well. So welcome, Dr. Vukak. Thank you, Jen. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Um, I think uh, today we really want to talk about um, why we're here, the directions we've taken so far and what we like doing and where, where we want to go. Um, you know, we've had uh, a massive uh, practice over a long, a long period of time. Um, I think one of the things that it's one of the things that's interesting when you, you're, you're talking to somebody about their job and their life and their, their interests is really drilling down and finding what's important to them and how they came to be in that situation. And, um, you know, when I was, uh, when I was just a kid, my mum used to work in a hospital in New Guinea and, uh, first, uh, was interested in medicine by, dropping by her, uh, she was, a, she was, a Secretary there, and we used to go. We used to ride my bike around, and I never forget the smell of the, of the hospitals. And that kind of, I think that's one of my first experiences uh, in the difference. It's, uh, it's interesting to reflect on how things come to be. Oh, totally. And you've and you've been doing plastic surgery for twenty six years. Is that right? Yeah, I finished. Uh, we finished in nineteen ninety, and then. Plastics is a pretty, in my day, because we've been going for a long time now, plastics is a complicated business because generally we did, we did general surgery first and so we were pretty experienced surgeons and then we did plastics and then in the 90s, everybody went overseas to train. So I went to train in Atlanta, uh, in Georgia at, at Emory. And um, these days you can just get straight out of uni training and just go starting practice. So the surgeons who are in their 40s and 50s generally, uh, in my experience, have had a broader experience of training because we've done general surgery, general surgeons first by and large, and then, then we've done a, a plastics fellowship and then we've gone on to, done, to do postgraduate uh, plastics training overseas. And so we understand how people in Europe operate and people in the US and we have a lot of friends there. And when the people are introducing new procedures, I think, um, you know, guys, surgeons in their 40s and 50s are probably a little bit more on top of it than uh, the guys that are coming out these days from the training. So um, am I right when, when I, you've had like over 40,000 patients that, that you've operated uh, yeah, on or treated? I just had a uh, in our last patient and I think we just, I just ticked over 48,600 patients that have treated wow. uh, in our clinic. So, um, we've, we've seen a lot of people and we've done a lot of operations. For example, now now I've put in 10,000 breast implants, uh, and there's only kind of like a select group of guys who've done that in Australia. And we've done eight, 800 tummy tucks and 800 breast reductions, um, you know, and hundreds of rhinoplasties and uh, and facelifts. So, wow. you know, in that 48,000 people, there's a, there's a lot of people. Uh, that's both Ian and myself. And so, uh, in, in Dr. Casson, uh, in our practice focuses more on uh, skin cancer and reconstruction and I tend to do more of the aesthetic stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so basically your specialty is the aesthetic procedures, right? Yeah, I just do, I pretty much just do aesthetic procedures. But, mm -hmm. um, when I first, when I first come to, when I first came to, I trained first and after I came back from Atlanta, um, I came to North Queensland and, you know, we were kind of like snowed under straight away. So 
the good thing is you have your training, you get overseas training, but then you get a lot, a lot of experience because you have to do a whole host of different operations and so you become you know, pretty versatile. So we started to practice uh, in Cairns and Matt Eisen, Rocky and Mackay has been along. So as I started those practices, I've got other people to come and work with me. So now they're working in those centres, so they're kind of like working uh, part of our, as part of our practice or under the GPS umbrella. Okay, so... Um, so your main head office, or the main clinic, is actually in Townsville, and you travel. And I, I go to Mackay, uh, and Malcolm goes to to Cairns and Rockhampton, and Tristan goes to is in Rockhampton, and Ian goes has previously gone to Manizer uh, in Townsville, now goes to Toowoomba. So we have a pretty broad reach through uh, through Queensland, especially in rural areas. Areas. Yeah. That's good because sometimes it's really hard for people that live out there to get somewhere close. So, you know, you've got a big area there that you can capture. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's really important. Um, you know, if you're having a major surgery, it's kind of nice to have it at home because, uh, you know, if you've, got, if you've got the guys to do it because, you know, the pain relief is more manageable. It's nice to be surrounded by family and friends. You don't have to fly back for, you know, follow-up visits. And, you know, if there's a complication, which can happen with any surgery, you know, we can sort out uh, where you live. We don't, you don't have to keep on flying to Brisbane or to, to Sydney to get that sorted. We can just deal with it. Yeah, totally. Um, now, one thing I like about, uh, or one thing that um, I really enjoyed reading about um, you, Dr. Vuke, is the fact that you've got a, a bit of a holistic approach to patient care and, um, and understanding. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think um, that just comes down to... Um, you know, doing you know to, to to doing classics for a while. I think the thing is, when you first start um, in any job, especially in medicine as a specialist, you really focus on you know forging your career and, and making a name for yourself, and you know proving that you can do it. But you know nowadays, and, and what that means is for the young guys, especially when I was there, because I know uh, what that means in most instances, is that you're very focused on yourself because you're really focused on the technique and whether you're doing the right thing. And then as the years, time goes by and more experience, you don't really have to prove yourself anymore because you've got such a big practice. People are coming to you. You can't stop people coming to you because they like what you do. And, you know, as time goes by, you make less mistakes. And um, the thing is that you're not focused on yourself anymore. And I think that's you're focused on other people. So now I'm kind of like, well, when I first started, I was really interested in you know how to do it. Now I'm interested in what the patient feels and making sure that they're happy and getting a good outcome for them. So, you know, I think all surgeons through through the whole of Australia can learn from that kind of experience. You know, because people are initially very focused on themselves, but then they then then their focus changes, and then the, the patient becomes the most important thing instead of you being the most important thing. Um, and that, that that's something that comes after doing it for a long time because you feel confident in your own skin and. You know, I really want to help people and, and, and make sure that they're happy with the outcomes and that I understand what they want to get out of it rather than telling them what to do. That's true. I, I mean, and, and repetition is the mother of skill. So the more experience you've got in, you know, the, the better you're going to be at it. That, that's all there is to it. Like, you know, the more you do it, the better you're going to be at it. Yeah. So our, our specialty is pretty interesting because they're set operations. But uh, one thing I learned in the US working with um, the the guys over there who are who are quite famous is that they're kind of like inventing procedures and as they go along and um, you know establishing that writing them up and improving them. So you know we're used to um, 
taking what we do know and then continually trying to strive to make it better. Mm. So, for example, um, you know, with breast uh, surgery, when it comes to, um, say, for example, breast reduction surgery, my preference is always to use a vertical mastopexy, which means I just do a random down about 90% of the time. So I try and have no horizontal incision at all where I can. And for about 9 out of 10 people, that, that, that's great. It's a great operation. And, but in Australia, everybody's pretty much taught to go around, down, and side to side. So it's a big horizontal component to the, to the surgery. But if you can refine it and you do it enough times, you just have the finesse to be able to just go around, down, so the scale shorter. And that's a very important part of breast reduction surgery and with mastopexy if you're having an implant as well. Because if you have a scar or a switch line that's just around nipple and down, you can wear a bikini or you can wear an evening gown and you don't see that scar coming out from underneath the breast, a very important part of surgery uh, is to minimise the scarring, and that's, that's part of the whole aesthetics. If you're doing a you know, tummy tuck, for example, a lot of people in Australia have adopted uh, French techniques from um, the guys in Lyon, and um, we do high, high superior tension abdominal plastic. So if you look on the net, for example, when you look at a tummy tuck, most tummy tucks are too full at the top and very flat at the bottom. Well. Uh, that's just not the, the best way of doing it. The best way, perhaps, is to elevate the tissues, do a lot of liposuction, and we, we do high superior tension, which means we get a lot of tension in the upper abdomen, and we carry that all the way to the bottom of the tummy, so that you get a flat abdomen from top to bottom. So, you know, our tummy tucks seem to be quite different to a lot of other people because the whole of the tummy is flat, not just the bottom of the tummy is flat. So, making those sort of subtle approaches uh, and advances are, you know, they're kind of like fun to do, and, and a lot of that stuff you have to, you can go to meetings and see what people are doing, but a lot of that stuff you have to sort of fill out for yourself with your repetition and just vary in your own procedures to get the best outcomes. That's true. And, um, and I noticed as well, because I've seen you at um, um, some of the conferences, so it, no matter how much you know, you're always pre you know, prepared or open to go and learn about um, new things that come out or new techniques or wanting to know what's going on, you, you know, because you do attend... Um, the conferences, so that's really important as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think I, I try to get to two or three meetings in, meetings a year, going to um, Salt Lake City in two weeks' time, and then we're going to um, we're going to Auckland uh, in August for the ASAS meeting, and then we'll go to another meeting in November or December, and possibly go to the New York meeting. So, um, I think with any every surgeon, it behoves them to uh, you know, to keep on to. They have to develop their own skill base, but it's in the setting of other people. You don't need to reinvent the wheels. Other people can tell you what to do, but you have to make your decisions, but you have to see how other people do it so you can structure your practice uh, as part of that whole process. Um, one, point in, one point to note was that, um, you know, about that, for example, is that with the uh, break difference, when we do arms or if we do a tummy tuck um, or spine reduction, for example, uh, so a lot of Australian guys have adopted the French uh, technique where we like suction first a lot of the areas and then placate the, the fascia and close the skin in a particular fashion. But it was interesting to see the uh, professors that have came out from um, uh, from East Coast US uh, and they're, they're showing us techniques that they use which is completely different. They don't believe in that. They're just doing big wedge excisions and so forth. And that's the kind of thing. They're sort of purporting to be the new techniques, but that's the stuff we used to do about 15 years ago. So we're not going to go back to that when we've got better stuff. And so it's, it's not only um, 
hearing what other people have to say, but it's, it's taking on board things that work and things that don't work. Um, the, probably the best example of um, that situation is um, the guys came out from San Francisco to talk about rhinoplasty at the Modern meeting uh, last January. And um, when we do a rhinoplasty, most Australian surgeons will just, if the dorsum is too heavy, it will just jump right through that and they'll cut the upper lateral cartilages and the septum, which are the things which can obstruct the airway. So a lot of people after rhinoplasty in Australia have breathing difficulties. And these guys from San Francisco are really at the top of the game at the moment in um, rhinoplasty. And um, whereas previously it was the guys from Dallas, um, uh, like, uh, who who are kind of like the focal point. So these guys talk about preservation of the cartilages and we'll do spreader flaps and grass, which means we'll take the upper lateral cartilages and we'll fold them down in onto themselves, but we'll preserve the width of the upper airway. So the noses are not quite as narrow as the previously owned one plastic, but the airway is really good. Um, and so I've been doing that for a few years now. It's just uh, phenomenal the difference it makes with rhinoplasty the improving, in terms of improving the, the nasal airway compared to the standard rhinoplasty that's done in Australia. So, so you need to take take these all these ideas and your belt and use them and find out which is the best which is the best way forward. Of course, and I, I suppose when you see stuff like that, it's really good to know that you're you're um, you're on the leading edge of everything as well. You think, yep, that's what I'm doing already. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of. Kind yeah. of fun, really. Yeah. Actually, when I was, uh, when I was in 1993, 1994, when I was a fellow in, a, in, a, uh, in Atlanta, um, we first uh, wrote up and sort of discovered the use of uh, endoscopic surgery and plastic surgery. So we'd use a telescope to go and do endoscopic type surgery, which we still do in the brow these days. So we kind of invented that operation there. And it was interesting that we had, because nobody had ever done that before, when we had we'd had workshops in Atlanta for all of the um, surgeons, so we have all the you know the guys, all the big names coming from New York and from Los Angeles, and they've come and we show them how to do these operations, and they've gone forward and written further papers, and now that uh, you know it's just being at the base of all that experience, working at you know, it's interesting to see be, be at the base at the beginning of all that sort of structure and seeing how it progresses forward, so you can see how the changes are made for the best, and the same with facelifts, you know, we've gone through. You know, the original facelift surgeries were, you know, skin only, and then we went to the SMAS, which is a deeper layer, and a lot of guys pull the SMAS up. Um, and now we're using more um, composite techniques where we go deeper into the face. It's a little bit trickier because you're close to the facial nerve, but when you move the whole block of tissue up, you get much deeper fixation that looks more natural. So with the whole sort of concept of facelift has changed now. So instead of getting trying to be tight, what we want to do is try and restore youth by fat grafting, doing a deep playing tissue so we can elevate it all up so it looks natural and full rather than just tight and flat. So um, we're, we're kind of like working with new techniques and trying ourselves and looking at what people do and that's how you come up with really the good results as you go along. Oh, that's exactly right. <laughs> and ha have you noticed um, in the last like year or two years any particular procedure is being asked for more by patients? Like, you know, the... Like, the, so for example, like skin removal? Uh, yeah. As in, uh, as in the US, uh, you know, plastic tends to follow the US quite a lot. And probably the commonest part of, of plastic and reconstructive surgery in the US is post-bariatric surgery, which means after people have massive weight loss or gastric sleeves, they've got a lot of excess skin, so they have lax tummies, lax faces and arms and legs, thighs and so forth. And as it turns out in Townsville in January, there's 31 gastric sleeves in Townsville in January. 
So of those 31 patients, you know, half of those patients are going to come to surgery at least. So we're going to be doing tummy tucks or fire reductions and and um, and so uh, I think probably the trend now um, in a lot of centers across areas is to really focus on body contouring surgery, which is involves the tummy tuck, body lifts, fire reductions, you know, breast reductions, and, and, and brachioplasty. So that's kind of like the staple bread and butter of day-to-day plastic surgeon these days, mm. um, which is kind of interesting, really. There's a there's a big difference when we do a tummy tuck from somebody who's had just normal, uh, like a post-pregnancy tummy tuck, um, where they've had twins, for example, and the tissues are very tight and you know, all the tracks and tight the muscle up and everything goes well. Who's lost 40 or 50 kilos and they've had a gastric sleeve and they've got the tissue tones lax because... First of all, we need much bigger surgery to cut all that excess tissue off, a lot of liposuction. But because their tissue tone is poor, almost 100% of these patients come to some sort of revisionary surgery so to, to, to do a retightening type procedure. So initially we thought, you know, with the body lift or tummy tuck, that's good. But now with, now with the bariatric surgery, a lot of these patients need some sort of revisionary surgery. So people have to understand what the limits are in their own body before they go into, before they go into the surgery. Oh, that's so true. I see that all the time in our groups. Like, um, um, you know, a, a girl who's just had a baby and yeah, got the loose baby skin is going to get a far different result to someone who's lost fifty kilos, has got excess skin, um, and you know, you might end up with the little doggy ears on the side that need to be cut off again later. And there's just no way of, um, you know, everybody's body's different. You just don't know what the outcome's going to be. So, um, it, I suppose it's about the patient dealing with their own expectations as well. Hey. Yeah, you have to take, because massive weight loss is such a big deal these days, there's kind of like different operation. You have to approach operation a bit differently to you would to, to that that you might do if you just had uh, a baby or if you just got a droopy breast, you need to have a lift, for example, because normally when we do breast surgery, just go round and down, which is a vertical mastopexy. But if you had a gastric sleeve and you've got a heavy droopy breast, a round and down is not good enough because the 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 tissue beside the vertical will also sag down. So if, you, if you're doing a gastric sleeve, if you're doing a breast reduction or a lift from a gastric sleeve, pretty much always you need to go around down side to side, which is different ballpark from, from augmentation or mastopexy or lift after just having a baby. And if you're doing, some, with a tummy tuck, for example, if you're doing um, somebody who's lost 50 or 60 kilos, which is a whole lot, traditional tummy tuck also doesn't work so well because you lose in a vertical direction, which is what the tummy tuck is good for, but you're also loose in the horizontal direction. So if you do a standard tummy tuck and you just fall down, it's going to be too loose around you. So in that situation, you might need to have a different type of tummy tuck, which is fleur de lis, which is where we make a cut down the middle of your tummy underneath and pull the whole thing together because you, you need to get horizontal tightening as well as vertical tightening. So but you have to have lost a um, massive amount of weight for that type of tummy tuck to happen. Um, but some people just need it. Now, um, one of the things which has come about in the last sort of five to ten years is sort of the concept of body lift, and uh, some people will do it and some people won't do it. I actually quite quite like it. Um, you start with your prone, lining your tummy, and we do big lock suction on the bottom and your thighs, and we take out a huge amount of tissue from your back and then roll you over and then do... Uh, carry the back incisions around the front so you get a huge amount of tissue over your front as well. And um, this year I took, 
uh, from the tummy tissue, one patient took 16 kilograms off their tummy. Oh, my God. So <laughs> a pretty massive expedition into the tummy to get that sort of volume out. Um, so even though people lost masses of weight, there's so much heavy skin and the tissues can still be quite heavy to get all that out. So uh, once you start talking about that kind of volume, there's some people are going to have more risk of complications than others with wound healing and delayed healing. So again, it's kind of getting the whole thing in perspective to see which is a know where you, you stand on the, on the spectrum of complications what the risks are. Yep, that's so true. Cause it's, it's, and, and once again, it's the patient being understanding that it's going to be a lot bigger recovery than someone who's had, say, a tummy tuck. Yeah, I think that's the case. Mm. And, um, and we're all different too. We all recover differently as well. So, I think one of the um, interesting um, the things about uh, breast augmentation these days for seconds that um, when we do an augment, uh, we can use, when we're establishing what to do size-wise and volume-wise and technique-wise, we can use a vector machine which can analyse uh, in a computer. But you know, actually, a bit old school, and I like to do a little bit more one-to-one uh, -one with the patient and, and put the implants into a bra and show them photographs of exactly how it's going to be and measure them up and do everything. One of the one of the misconceptions about breast augmentation these days is that you get a good result when you go subglandular, which is underneath the breast tissue. So that is almost never any good, um, from, you know, for for most people because if you do subglandular, which is certainly the cheaper way of doing it and, and uh, the easy way of doing it, the implants too close. Oh, sorry, close to close to is subglandular above or below the muscle? That that's above, that's isn't it? Muscle, yeah. Okay. And yep. so the problem when you go above the muscle, especially if you're very thin, is that you can just people think it's think it's the way to go, but it's actually what we're seeing now is a lot of rippling, uh, capture contracture, hardening, and so forth. And so generally, you want to put the implants underneath the muscle to get the most natural sort of look. Um, and certainly, if you go to a plastic surgeon, which is different from uh, a, a cosmetic GP, for example, who may be a cosmetic surgeon without any surgical training. Um, because they're not surgeons, they're not allowed to go to the operating theatre hospital, so they have to put the implant in front of the muscle. So that's really that's the only way to go. Because to put the implant underneath the muscle, you need to have a general anaesthetic. But the cosmetic result is so much better, the complication rate is much lower, the aesthetics are so much better, you have less hardening and capture contracture, yeah. and uh, there's really no comparison between those two in terms of the final, final result. Yeah. Okay. So, so because they don't really have that surgical training, they kind of and and they're not allowed to, you, you know, have well sometimes a kind of general aesthetic. That's why they would go over the muscle, which is Correct. not as good a that's result. Right. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. It that's makes so much true. sense. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot of guys who put the implant in front of the muscle, but then there's just skin then implant. So you're seeing a round tennis ball stuck on your chest. But if you can put the implant underneath the muscle, um, it's deeper into your body, get a more natural appearance. You've got a bit of flow at the upper pole of the breast. You can get a nice, you can get any shape you want. It doesn't, even if you use a round implant and the muscle, you can still get a teardrop sort of look. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just so much better operation. So the, one of the issues um, these days is the kind of plastic large cell lymphoma, which is going to be a big deal, um, you know, in years to come. Because last Christmas they had 350 women with ALCL, which is acute. It was an plastic large cell lymphoma, and of those 350 women, nine women have died. So it's a pretty important disease. They found that. Uh, so what we've found so far is that uh, 
in that in that number of women, almost no women had ALCL with smooth implants. Two had microtexturing, and um, the by far the majority had macrotextured implants. So a macrotextured implant is um, is uh, Allergan Biocell, uh, polyurethane, some Nagor, and some um, um, Uracilicon. So you know. The risk is small, but in the polyurethane, it appears that it's going to be about one in four thousand women with polyurethane implants will get ALCL, um, which is a pretty big deal. With the mentor, uh, the texturing, there appears to be about one in sixty thousand women are going to get ALCL. Um, but with the smooth implants, there's a very limited number of people who've had this problem. So, I think nowadays, it was a trend for a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues, to move back to smooth implants instead of the textured implant. And the reason that this is coming about is because on the surface of a smooth implant, it's not many bacteria, but on the surface of a textured implant, macro texture especially, there's 70 times more bacteria. So there's a particular bacteria on the textured implant surface which seems to be causing this cancer. So just of this year, uh, just in the last few weeks, two uh, American university hospitals have now said they're not using textured implants anymore. So um, this, is a, this is the start of something important uh, in aesthetic surgery because what we'll find, you know, last year they had 350 women, in a couple of years' time they'll have a couple of thousand, and then you know, 10 years' time they'll have 20,000. This is the way things go in medicine. So, um, you know, the, the people that are persisting with the um, macro textured implants are probably doing their patients a disservice, I think, at this stage of the game. Uh, because we'll find in years to come that um, there's a higher than expected incidence of uh, lymphoma from macro textured implants. Yeah. And so, so if you have a if the surgeon is telling you to have a macrotection implant like allergen biocell or a polyurethane, then they, they, I think they're generally doing a disservice at this stage of the game, and knowing what we do know now, even though it's early days. So my, my recommendation is to go to either a smooth implant or a microtextured implant, mm -hmm. um, because it's very low incidence of ALC with those things with those implants. And um, and the Mativa now I've got the new um, the next generation nano um, textured implants sure. as well. Yeah, which are, yeah. Mativa is a micro textured implant. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's all changing, isn't it? So it pays to go to someone who's up to date with everything and knows what's going on as well. I, I think it's also the responsibility of the surgeon because mm -hmm. the, I mean a lot of guys who are using. Um, Allergan naturals and uh, and the polyurethanes haven't changed their ways. They're not they're not they're not moving with the times or going with the flow. But, but so they're not respecting their patients because you know if my wife wanted a breast augmentation, I, w I wouldn't recommend those implants to her. But they're happy to. There's a lot of surgeons who just keep or just persist because they've got to deal with uh, with, a, with with the supplier and they can get the implants cheap, and so that's what you're going to get without actually taking into consideration what the real issues are. Mm -hmm. So you've got to find, you know, this. You've, you've got to look for some um, understanding and, you know, uh, sort of concern for the patient while being in health to try and give them the best possible outcome as you go along. Yep, that's so true, so true. Oh, that's been really interesting because I, I didn't know about the. Um, uh, well, I, actually, I did know that. I just thought that people preferred above, you know, um, sorry, like un unders or overs. I didn't actually realise that there was. You know, I thought it was just the patient that decided whether they wanted them to be over because they wanted them more obvious or under because, you know, not to be so obvious, but it's not like that at all. So that was a real eye-opener for me then. It's not, it's not like that at all. Yeah. Um, the, the issue is that in Australia, as it turns out, as in, as in the US, uh, 
cosmetic GPs and uh, cosmetic surgeons who have, you know, many who have no surgical, formal surgical training, because there's so many of these guys around, uh, just the momentum, they can only promote in front of the muscle as the only way to go because that's the only thing they're allowed to or can do. Yeah, and so all of a sudden it's popular to do that because that's what you look on the net and you see, oh, in front of the muscle, and, and you know, so many people are doing that, but, you know, the people that are doing that don't have the option to go underneath. So if you went to see a plastic surgeon, to, for example, who's in the aesthetic society, they can give the option of going below or in front of the muscle. So the only reason that you might want to go in front of the muscle is if you um, have a droopy breast and you want the implant to go lower, because if you're going behind the muscle with a droopy breast, sometimes the implant gets pulled up and the breast falls away. But the, the problem about going in front of the muscle with an implant is that if you have an implant which is big enough and you go in front of the muscle, when you lean forward, the upper part of the implant can fall away from your chest, especially with a teardrop implant, to the point where you can actually put your hand behind the implant to the, on the front of your chest wall, which is kind of a scary. funky thing, a yeah. scary thing. Yeah. Um, so to sort this problem out, which um, you know, can potentially happen, I went to Rio to operate with these guys who do a lot of... Um, this type of implant. Um, and what we, what we did in Rio was to make, instead of putting the implant in front of the muscle with a bigger implant, what we do is make it a transverse incision through the pectoralis major. So we take the implant, if it's a teardrop shape, and put it up underneath the top of the muscle. So put the top of the implant underneath the, the muscle, and the bottom of the implant can be in front of the muscle underneath the breast tissue. So that way you half muscle and half breast tissue, and that works out. That's sort of a split muscle technique, which I learned in Rio. And that really helps for somebody who's got a droop for breast, we don't want to do a lift, we can put the implant partially in front of the muscle. But in most other cases, underneath the muscle is by far the way to go. If, if you put the implant in front of the muscle, it looks good for a little while, but then if you think about it, and you apply logic, the skin has to take the weight of the implant. So next thing you know, you know, after five years, after 10 years, after 15 years, your implants descended down to your belly button because you haven't got the muscle support to hold it up. So your sub glands in front of the muscle implants will descend down to your belly button um, before you know it. Whereas if you go submuscular, you've got the fascia and you've got the ligaments in the bottom of the muscle possibly holding the implant up against your chest wall. So there's less descent over time. There's less capsular contraction. And if you do get a capsule, it's much less obvious. Um, so the time to go in front of the muscle is if you've got a droopy breast, and then you might use a teardrop implant to push the implant, to push the breast forward. Pretty much all other times, you pretty much want to go underneath the muscle. Well, that makes so much sense. And what, what about though for girls that do a bit of weightlifting in that? How does like you know the the if there's some of the pectoralis muscle, how does that affect that, or can they just they shouldn't um, well, do it? My, no, my uh, my thoughts on the whole thing has changed over the last twenty years because knowing that you think oh well because they're doing weightlifting and um, we should always go in front of the muscle. But the problem is that because they've got such low body fat, you know, 5%, 8% body fat, uh, you just see two sack on tennis balls when you go in front of the muscle. And, but the problem is if you go underneath the muscle when you're bodybuilding and you divide, so because your pec major inserts along your sternum and then a little bit onto your ribs. And so but traditionally what we do is divide, if you go underneath the muscle, divide the pec major underneath the ribs and a little bit up along the sternum. But the problem if you're a bodybuilder and you put the implant underneath the muscle, the end of the muscle, is when you divide it, can flick up and join onto the skin. So when you're doing a show and you're contracting and, you, and you're pulling your hands close together and you're showing your, your pecs off, the problem is you get an indentation in the skin 
beside the sternum if you've got low body fat because the end of the muscle can join up to the skin. It can join up to the skin instead of sticking up the sternum if you go subpetral. So what I've found in bodybuilders, the best thing to do is not to go subglandular but to do submuscular but not with a division up along the sternum, just do a low major release. So you're still getting submuscular placement, which works pretty good, uh, and you're getting more natural look than that stuck on tennis ball effect because of the low body fat. But you're not getting the muscle joining onto the skin on the inside, which can be a problem when you're doing shows. Yeah, so when it comes down to it, it's um, it, it, it depends on the patient as to what you're going to do, doesn't it? Depends on the patient they're going to yeah. do. It also depends where they are in their career because, you know, people with bodybuilding, you know, some people it's a lifelong ambition, but some people at the end of their careers when they decide to do an augment and, you know, have to, uh, and they might be off-season, you know, and if you haven't got, if you not haven't got long to go because everybody has, uh, you know, a period of time like to do, like, it's such an intense thing, people are really into it. But then they stop, and when you stop, that's a good time to do an augment uh, if you can. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's been great. That's been so interesting. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, so I mean, I love what I do. It's just so interesting. And, and but the main thing is, you now once you've got a handle on the technique, the main thing is is really listening to the patient, understanding what they want, and giving them something they're happy with. And then if they're not happy, then you fix it up till they are happy. Yeah. You know, I don't like I don't like to let them slide. I want to make sure everybody's happy and. But that's the thing you learn when you live in a place in a rural environment. I mean, we have the technique, we have the expertise, we have the, you know, the patients. But you know, if you if you're not a good surgeon, then everybody knows about it. That's exactly and, right. The If you live in Sydney or you live on the Gold Coast and you're not a bad surgeon and you're a bad surgeon, well, nobody knows about it, and you can just keep on going. But if you're in a small town, everyone knows about it. So you just every time you do something, it has to be good. It's true. That's true. Yeah, you got to really look up. I mean, everyone has to look after their patients anyway. But yeah, more especially in a small town because yeah, people talk. That's right. So um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's been awesome. Thank you so much. And I hope you don't mind if we call on you another time to do another podcast. That would be amazing. Okay. Awesome. That'd be great. All right. Well, thank you. So, um, ladies and guys out there, if you're looking, if you're um, up in far north Queensland, anywhere from. Uh, Townsville through through to Mackay, through to Cairns, uh, through to Rockhampton, um, and you're looking for a surgeon, you definitely don't go past Queensland Plastic Surgery. You can get them through the Plastic Surgery Hub website or drop us an email to info at plasticsurgeryhub.com.au or just Google Queensland Plastic Surgery. Easy. So thank you so much, Dr. Vukak. Great. Super. Thank Thanks you. Again. Bye. Bye.